Mez pastors a church called Nidri Community Church. He also helps lead a ministry called 20 Schemes that most of you are familiar with. So the plan tonight is uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, Mez is going to walk us through a passage in Titus, and then he has two colleagues here that we'll be doing some question and answer with. So uh, as he's talking, you might be thinking about things you'd like to ask, and then we'll, we'll have somewhere around 45 minutes towards the end. That's just open Q&A for anything you would like to ask. So let me pray, and then Mez, you can come. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together tonight. Thank you for the unique privilege we have of uh, hearing from uh, Mez McConnell. Thank you for the work that you're doing in Nidri, the work that you're doing in 20 Schemes. And uh, Lord, we have enjoyed the initial steps in a partnership with them, and we're just thankful for the opportunity to hear from him tonight. Uh, Father, all of us, if we're Christians, are disciple makers. So we pray that you would speak to each of us in a way that is helpful, encouraging, and motivating. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Can you make that higher? I know I am short, but come on. That's like a bit... Is this dude always this unhelpful? All right, cool. That'll do. Right, good evening. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a bit of a disadvantage. You seem to know who I am. I've got no clue who you are. And I didn't meet your pastor till about an hour or so ago. So even though he's been to my church with um, Tad. <laughs> Holding it in. Okay. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. So we're going to be looking at Titus 2 tonight. It's going to help you if you've got a Bible and it's open. Find that a helpful way to do study. Okay. Is this thing okay? It feels, a bit, feels like it's sticking out there somewhere. Okay. Um, why don't we pray before we read God's word and ask him to help give us uh, understanding and enlightenment. So let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We're so uh, thankful for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for grace in our lives. We're thankful that not only did you draw us to yourself and bring us into your kingdom, but that you uh, didn't leave us alone. You left your word uh, for us, Lord, that perfect word, which is a light to our paths. And we just pray uh, this evening, Lord, that uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us uh, both understanding and bring uh, conviction, uh, encouragement, rebuke, uh, whatever it is you have for us, Lord. Uh, we are desperate to just honor you, uh, and we ask uh, that we would uh, listen attentively and that you would seek to help us bring application into our own lives and contexts. And we ask this for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's read together then. So uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But uh, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. 
They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. Now, 20 years ago, um, I was uh, homeless. I'd been homeless for maybe six years, living on the streets in various places. Uh, I was living in a bus shelter. And, uh, I, I, and when I first uh, came to faith in Jesus Christ, I had never read a Bible uh, in my life, I had absolutely no Christian background. I'd never been uh, to a, a church. I had no understanding of uh, what Christianity was completely in the dark. Yet somehow God reached through the, the darkness of my life situation and, and, and saved me uh, in his great mercy. And, and so here I am pretty much 18 uh, years later uh, preaching to you today. So you might find that weird. Trust me, I find it weirder. Um, and in those 18 years since I was in that bus shelter uh, until standing before you here this evening, I have had my ups and downs when it comes to the faith. There have been some good years. As a Christian, there's been some years where I've almost walked away from uh, the church. There's been times of great difficulty and sadness and sorrow in my ministry and in my personal life. And there's been other times of just great joy and uh, just blessing um, from the Lord. And I can say in the almost 20 years since Christ intervened in my life that one of the greatest blessings that has been to me has been uh, the local church. It has been uh, their local church coupled with solid biblical discipleship. Because you see, the thing about being a Christian is that God has not saved us to do this thing on our own. God places uh, uh, strategically uh, in his great and wonderful uh, sovereign providence. He places people in our lives. And in my own life, I can count at least half a dozen people who have been important to me in my faith journey for uh, a number of different reasons. So I, I, I remember the first pastor I ever, ever had. He's in his 80s now, 
uh, Mr. Finney. He was in his 60s uh, at the time I was saved under his uh, ministry. Uh, and, and I always remember Mr. Finney. Um, he was old school, as we say. He, he said to me, Mez, if, if I or anybody else teach something that is contrary to the Bible, then they or I am wrong. The Bible uh, should stand over everything in your life. He taught me the importance of trusting the word of God. He taught me to trust it absolutely 100% uh, without fail. And then there was uh, the man who um, uh, discipled me in the first few months of uh, my, my faith. In the first few years even, I was like all new Christians. I was a bag of questions. I had a question for every occasion, and um, I thought I was clever. Uh, and I wasn't clever. I was just dumb, but he was patient. Um, and I would bang this guy with, I mean, I would turn up to a Bible study with 100 questions, and bang, 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 constantly just hammer this guy week in and uh, week out. But that guy just patiently, calmly taught me um, the Bible and helped give me a biblical worldview, helped me to understand the gospel particularly, and he helped me understand some of the deeper truths of Scripture. Then there was the man who uh, led me to Christ. He, he visited me in prison and my my last prison sentence, and uh, he gave me a place to live when I had nothing, absolutely nothing. And this guy took me in and uh, showed me how to live a life. Uh, uh, my life had been chaos, uh, but this guy gave me structure and gave me uh, accountability and discipline in my life. And then there was a, a couple... Um, uh, who, who uh, gave me a place to live as, as I was starting seminary. And through them, because I'd spent most of my life from the age of two on the streets or in various educational authorities, th th this is the first time I saw up close a Christian family in action. They took me into their home, and I watched and observed and learned and, and was taught by them at what a Christian family ought to look like. So they showed me hospitality. They showed me love. They showed me patience. And uh, these were extremely important years in my life. These are people who all came together and helped me become, uh, give me some stability. Um, uh, uh, and even to this day, uh, as I think about my ministry and my home life and my house and the people who are in and out of my life, um, that, that's all because of what I learned. Everything I know to do, I've learned from people and Christians in the local church. I caught what they taught. And you need to remember that because it's an important principle for Christian discipleship. And then as I got married as a, as a young man and, and had a family, I had a friend who taught me what it was to be a Christian husband, what it was to be a Christian father, and what it was to be a Christian man. I had no role models in my life. I never knew my mother. My father was a drunk gambling addict. And this was a man who set an example for me in every respect. And so my point, rather in a roundabout fashion, is this, is that my Christian development, 
my Christian growth and maturity has been a community affair. Not, there's not just one person that I can point back to who's responsible solely for helping me grow into Christ-likeness. Now, if every Christian, I should be able to pull any one of you who says they trust and believe in Jesus Christ, I should be able to pull any one of you out here right now, stand you on this stage, and you should be able to give me a similar uh, tale of how people have been speaking into your life and how they've been enabling you to grow. I'm not going to do that because some of you look a bit panicked. You can always tell when people start avoiding eye contact and they look down. But if, this, if that's not the case, if I was to pull you out here right now and you'd be lost for words, then um, you need to think about that. You need to think about uh, where you are and how you are growing as a believer. Because sooner or later, if we live the Christian life as an island, on our own, forming our own opinions and you know, uh, views about everything on our own, sooner or later we're going to get into trouble. Sooner or later we're going to either harden our hearts and, and, and wander off into some sort of theological heresy from whatever sexy blog post is out there these days that people follow, or, 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 or we're going to find ourselves enmeshed in some deep sin that is hidden from the rest of the community. And so whatever you think about your church, and I bet some of you don't think happy thoughts all the time, whatever you think about this local body, you need one another. That's the bottom line. We need, as Christians, people to challenge us. We need people to urge us on in the Christian faith. We need people to rebuke us, to correct us. We need people to pick us up when we fall down. We need people to help us to persevere as we battle through the Christian life. And as we come uh, and approach this text this evening, this is what Titus is all about. You see, Paul, who wrote this letter, he he, he writes to a young pastor, and he's looking to protect uh, this young group of Christians from false teachers who had begun to sneak into the flock and bring some damage. If you look back at uh, chapter 1 and verse 11, we read, They, these are the false teachers, they must be silenced. Why? Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And if you look down at verse 13, Paul uses very strong language. He says, Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. What he's saying is bring them back into line with sound teaching. And so at the end of chapter 1 of Titus, Paul ends with this list of the sins, if you look, of the false teachers. And he's saying we know them not only uh, by what they teach, but also by the fruit of their lives. And then as we enter into verse uh, uh, 1 of chapter 2, we see Paul warning Titus with the opening lines. He says, you, however, or as for you, as the ESV says, you, however, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul says, you, you are to be different. So how, how is he to be different? How is Titus to be different? 
Well, verses 2 to verses 12 explain how Titus is to be different as the church waits for verse 13. So if you look at verse 13, the job of the church then and now is we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how do we, as a church, do we keep ourselves pure? How do we, we uh, persevere and urge and encourage one another on as we wait for this great event? Well, he says in verses 2 to 11, this is how we do it. And I want us just to whiz through a couple of principles in verses 2 to 12, sorry, uh, now. Now, recently my wife and I were in Dubai, um, um, which is pretty cool, by the way, Dubai. And um, we went to this place called the, the Mall of the Emirates, and this place was huge. We don't sort of do malls in Scotland. Um, Americans and you dudes do it all massive, don't you? Um, but I'll tell you what, this Mall of the Emirates is like huge. It's got an indoor ski slope. That's how big this bad boy is. And um, it's so huge, there are giant red taxis to shuttle people across, up and down the, the different floors. So it's really just weird. <laughs> and, and, and even though we went back about three or four times, uh, we still didn't have enough time to visit everywhere. We, we, we sort of had to pick and pick and choose the places um, uh, we went to visit. We had to be quite selective, and, and, and it's a bit like Titus 2 uh, tonight. There's a lot going on in these verses. There's all sorts of things happening, but we haven't got time to get through everything. And so what we're going to do is we'll just pop into a couple of verses, have a rummage about, and then um, jump back out again. So let's just stop at verse 1 for a second and remind ourselves. What does he say? He says, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. Literally translated sound doctrine, healthy teaching. Now, if you wanted to, to grow physically, um, we have to watch what we eat and drink, don't we? I can't just spend my life eating junk food. Well, I could, couldn't I? But what would the end result be? Sooner or later, I'm going to pay a price for eating junk. So if we don't look after our, 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 our physical diet, sooner or later we'll pay a price. Well, the same is true in the spiritual world. If we don't watch what we put in and digest into our souls, then sooner or later it will have a detrimental effect on us spiritually. If we only listen to junk then we're only going to ever produce junk. And so Paul is saying, listen, Titus, speak, literally, speak proper things, he says to them, appropriate things, relevant things. He's not referring to pulpit ministry here, although that is relevant too. He is talking in his language about everyday speech. He's talking about the everyday scenarios in which Titus will find himself as a young pastor. And that's important as you think through Titus chapter 2. And notice that error, false teaching, is refuted how? False teaching is, ref is refuted through healthy doctrine, Paul says. Now, I don't know what the church is like in the States, but I can only speak for my culture. So we have 0.5% evangelical Christians in Scotland. 
in the schemes where I come from, there are probably, I will guess, more members of your church than there are Christians in 40% of our country that I represent. I don't know about uh, your culture, but our culture, the idea of doctrine is well, well out of fashion today. People, in fact, in our culture are put off Christians by the word doctrine. So uh, the popular expression in our culture is doctrine divides. The answer, of course, is, of course it divides, because that's what it's supposed to do. That's its job. So our doctrine of the divinity of Jesus will divide us from those who teach that he was just a moral man. Our doctrine of original sin will divide us from those who teach that man is born sinless and good. So yes, doctrine does divide. But importantly, and Paul wants us to know this, doctrine also unites us. And it separates those who are false Paul says, from those who are true. And, and, and many Christians today think it's not loving to speak of doctrine. Let's, let's focus on Jesus. Oh, let's give him a big hug. <laughs> you know, sort of hippie, chicky, christian people. Sort of hug a tree and hmm. <laughs> but the problem is that even to mention the name Jesus is a doctrinal statement. Another danger, though, is so we have people on the one hand go, let's just reject, you know, doctrine and love Jesus. But on the other hand, you've got, um, you know, the old right-wing brigade who just make studying doctrine almost idolatrous. It's almost like a competition to see who can find the most obscure words and put them in a sentence. And so we've got guys who make it a habit to study the lives of long-dead Christians. And what they do is they divorce healthy doctrine um, from healthy living. So I know men in my country, you may know them in yours, who know every, they've read every word written about the life of Jonathan Edwards. Anybody know anybody like that? So they know how he used to live, you know, how many bottles of milk he used to get delivered, you know, what he ate for breakfast... Everything about this dude. And I always think, well, good for you. Generally, these people have no friends. (laughs) And so we have got ourselves in such a state in the church, in some parts of the church, that people, and this is the sad thing, people actually know more about the lives of long-dead Christians than they do about the lives of the people sat three rows away from them in the congregations. More about the lives of their, more about dead dudes than the lives of their family members or the concerns and trials of their next door neighbors. And I think that's tragic. And that is the state of Christianity largely in my country. Superficial, let's do the religious bit, sing a few songs, the pastor knocks out a good sermon, we all shake hands, have a cup of tea, go home, let's do it all again next week. How tragic is that? Not only is that tragic, that is dangerous. And and Paul says, Titus, don't fall into that trap. Speak into people's lives daily this healthy teaching. So of course he should study doctrine, but not just for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of discipleship. Because if our reading and our knowledge is not being put put to practical use, then what good is it? 
That's when knowledge begins to puff up. But if we avoid learning and studying the Bible and some of its more uh, 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 difficult doctrines, then what good are we? Because that too is a serious danger. So we must have, as Christians, uh, not only our leaders, we must have a healthy approach to doctrine. So uh, then uh, we'll be able to teach people one another things which are helpful and healthy for our lives. Notice in verse 7, he challenges Titus that doctrine is not only to be learned and taught, but look what he says, it's to be modeled, he says. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be put to shame. So he's to set an example. He's not just to give the chat. Anyone can give a great lecture, but he's to set an example. He says, Paul says the same to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, when he says, be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And so Paul was consistent in this teaching to his young pastors. Be an example to others. That's part of discipleship too. God is as interested in how we live as much as in what we believe. And character has got to be the key to the life of every Christian, and particularly those of us who want to be leaders and disciples of others. And Paul says here, look, our teaching and our life should be filled with integrity. And we don't live in a clean-cut society. People around us live messy, chaotic lives. And it would be easy to be fooled into thinking, well, you know, that's true largely for, you know, the poorer parts of town. You know, the drug addicts, the alcoholics, the people who haven't got a good education. But that's not true. Because people who wear suits and drive nice cars and have got a nice job in the city, they are living just as messy too. But the good news is that all of us, all of them, can be transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And that's where we come in, in how we model Christianity to people, by what we teach in terms of healthy doctrine and by how we live and act toward one another. Toward one another. We must get the one anothering right. And so some of the greatest influences in my life have not just taught me stuff from the Bible, but they taught me morality too. They modeled it. They showed me what it looked like. They taught me how to live as a Christian. But here's the rub. That doesn't happen unless church life is more than a group of meetings. It doesn't happen. So we need a culture of openness more within evangelical Christianity. We need to be practicing community at all sorts of levels every day of the week, together in groups, in small groups. I don't know what the structure of the, the church is here. Our, our, ours is very different in one another's homes, in and out of each other's lives with a culture of transparency, but healthy Bible doctrine being spoken into one another's lives. Community does not mean popping around for a barbecue and having a moan about the elders. That's not community. All right? 
That's dangerous. Community challenges that. And not only does it challenge that attitude, but it then seeks to bring correction through healthy teaching. That's community. Let's not get confused. High-fiving and barbecues is not it. And and, and this isn't just a word for young pastors, because look at what he says in verses 2 and 6. Older men, he says, are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Jump down to verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So he's to teach this stuff to men, Paul says, young and old. What do young men need today more than ever in our churches? What do they need? Well, I'll tell you what they need. They need godly, older men who will live, who in their lives will teach them healthy doctrine and model to them what godly Christian living looks like. So the Christian life is not a static life. Jesus hasn't saved us to sit around, you know, waiting for verse 13. Let's just sit around, hang about, hang on for as long as possible. He'll come again, high fives all round, let's go to glory. That's not what he saved us for. God has given us a task. God has given mature, uh, uh, older Christians, uh, men, a task while uh, this thing is going on. And again, I I can speak for my culture, I won't speak to yours, but in my culture there is a real lack of Men in the church. Mature, godly men. We have got a crisis in our country where there are no men anywhere hardly going into ministry at all. Young men are just not coming through. We have a massive shortfall of uh, men. That's why I travel around this country trying to encourage uh, men to come and give their lives for the sake of the gospel. In our country, Bible colleges or seminaries aren't getting the job done. It's not working. They're not going to resolve the issue for us. Professional institutions and mission agencies are not going to resolve the issue for us. And so the problem of young men coming through needs to be resolved at local church level. We need to get our heads back in the game and stop farming out our discipleship to outside agencies. It has to happen here, and it has to happen with us, and it has to happen with our older, mature men. We need to deal with the root problem. Now, more than ever in our culture, um, it's less defined in your culture because numbers give a sense of security. That probably isn't really there. But, you know, because you're bigger, you think you're safer. But you need to be defining and bringing in a culture of discipleship. Older men with younger. We need to be teaching men to be real men. And you know, not all this, um, not going to say the names, but not all this sort of macho trash that I read on the blogosphere. Let's, you know, drink 10 beers and go to a cage fight. Yeah. <laughs> Idiots. Um, <laughs> You know, there's a real culture in Christianity that concerns me in the modern evangelical world that real men drink beer, Christian men have tats. I'm trying to teach my men that real men don't spend their money on beer and take care of their children and and don't uh, get involved in violence. 
Because a real man, according to this text, a real man, according to the Bible, if you read the words in the text, older men are to to do what? To teach what? Temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and endurance. And so older men, our job is to hold hold forth this picture of biblical manhood in our culture. We don't model worldliness. A real man is self-controlled, and his life shines as an example to others. He's to be steadfast and dependable. When did that become boring? But it is, isn't it, in the church? It's a crime. It's a sin. A real man doesn't run into trouble. Doesn't run when trouble comes. A real man loves his wife and family. A real man respects the opposite sex and does not treat them like objects. If he's single, he follows the Lord's wholeheartedly and with a pure life. This is what young men need around them. This is the type of man missing from so many of our churches. And older men, this is your job. This is your job. Don't criticize the young if you're sitting back doing nothing. This is what you have been called to do as you and we as a community wait for the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the priority Paul crams between verse 1 and verse uh, 13. Teach, he says. Teach. Disciple. Lead. Live. Model. Pass your wisdom on. Uh, Mature men in this church, it is criminal if you're keeping your wisdom to yourself. And Christians, today, men and women, were under massive pressure from an overtly sexualized media. And don't think that life wasn't, you know, was so different when, when Paul wrote these words. Crete was, Crete was the party destination for young guys looking for a good time. They could do what they wanted, sex on tap in Crete, when these words were written. And, and anyone, anyone not getting involved in this kind of lifestyle, they would have stood out. They would have looked like the geek of the year. You know, the freak in the corner. We're not so different. Culture hasn't changed that much. And so what young men needed in that culture was a calming, steadying, mature, godly, influence, speaking wisdom. They needed a steady diet of healthy teaching. And nothing has changed. I've got nothing sexy to say tonight. Pretty boring probably, because nothing has changed. Older men, we have to be nurturing our young men as future leaders. So my question, and I don't know the answer, and I'm just going to throw the questions out there. This is called a hit and run where I come from. (laughs) Um, Is how is this church actively nurturing its young men? How are you providing a way for them to be seriously discipled through all walks of life? Because if you're not doing it, then be be assured of this. Somebody is influencing and shaping them if it's not you. Somebody's doing it. 
And maybe you think, well, it should get done from the pulpit. You know, the pastors need to sort it out. But every single Christian man, mature man in this room, needs to be in a discipling relationship with somebody. So if you're an older, mature man in this room, the challenge for you is, who are you discipling? Who are you investing your life into? To whom are you regularly, daily, speaking healthy words of doctrine? Or are you just assuming the pastor does it or the leadership team or I don't know what the structure of your particular body is here. Are you just assuming, well, somebody else must be doing it? Because, you know, we're a pretty cool church and we're well committed to discipleship. Being committed to the word is not being committed to the actual event. If the answer is nobody, if the answer to you is I'm not really doing, not really doing anybody, then maybe you need to look, take a look in the mirror. Maybe you need to reassess some priorities in your life. Maybe you need to think of a young man with whom you could invest your time and your life and your energy. And if you're a young man, don't be passive. Don't be sitting there saying, yeah, you give it to granddad. Don't be. <laughs> Maybe you need to take, grasp the nettle and seek and find out an older, godly, mature man and say, look, will you disciple me? Will you mentor me? Will you teach me? Will you hold me accountable in my life as I seek to live for the glory of God in this day? Find somebody to pray with you, to encourage you. Somebody to lean on is going to point you back to Jesus. Is going to encourage you in the faith. Because it's like a flower, isn't it, faith? If, if, if it isn't watered regularly, then it's going to shrivel and die for lack of sustenance. And so will we. We need one another, men, don't we? We need to think these things through. So, slap for the men. Yes. Right, ladies. Get your cheeks ready. Because the appeal here is not just for men, is it? Women are mentioned. Look at verses 3 to 5. Fascinating. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, etc., etc., etc. Women, Paul says, need role models too. Women need to be actively discipled too. Women need healthy doctrine taught, spoken daily into their lives. Notice the phraseology he uses, reverent in behavior, not gossiping, not too heavy on the old source, as we say, where I come from. Uh, uh, They're to be teachers, admonishers. And and these two words, teaching, admonishing, they're active words. He's saying bringing the truth uh, of healthy doctrine is not just a male pastime. That's been a great weakness of the evangelical church in my country. Yes, we believe that uh, eldership and leadership and pastoring is a male-only domain. But we have weakened the church by not enabling and empowering women to speak healthy doctrine into one another's lives. You know, in the olden days, before microwaves and and stuff, women were actually taught how to cook in our culture, uh, proper food. And, and boys 
Boys learn skills from their dads and their, and their granddads, but that doesn't happen in my culture anymore. You know, in the olden days, if a, if a, if a, if a, if a girl gave birth young to a, 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 a child, you know, the, maybe mom would take care of it, and certainly grandma would be around to help. Um, on my, where I come from in my culture, grandma is now the crack dealer. We're in big trouble. My culture is down the toilet. That word? <laughs> Lavatory? <laughs> Restroom? I don't know. And most people don't get their teaching from mom anymore or grandma or any extended family member come to that. They get it from the television. That's where my people get their morality. That's where they get their worldview. And so church leaders, we need to be encouraging older women to teach young women and get them off this diet of daytime TV and yakky talk shows talking nonsense. And we should not be too scared to release women into ministry, into service in the local church. And when again, we have been terrible at this in certain evangelical circles. Young women need to be taught, Paul says, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be homemakers, to be obedient to their husbands. There's a sentence to wind up every woman in the room. <laughs> I'm not going to play with that one. But older women, among other things, are to teach young women to bring their homes under the lordship of Jesus. Now, there's context here. When Paul was writing, he was obviously writing against false teachers who, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 11, they seem to be bringing their message through the home, through women in particular. But his point remains the same. The point is that women are to teach other women healthy doctrine, not for the purpose of knowledge, but for the purpose of living it out in daily life. So in our modern context, what does it mean for a woman who works full-time to be a godly woman, to be a disciple, to be a missionary? What does that mean? What does that look like? Who does a young woman go to? You know, you could say, well, just give it to the pastor. I don't think that's a good thing. She needs to go to a godly, older, mature woman who can speak into her life and bring her encouragement. Doesn't she? What does it mean for the single mother who comes to faith in Jesus Christ and has absolutely no clue what she's supposed to do? And actually she feels a bit inferior because most of the other people in the church, maybe they're married or... Who's going to speak healthy words of doctrine into her life if it's not godly, mature, older women gathering around her? There's a time in the United Kingdom when it was uh, thought, women were thought of badly for going out to work. You know, they were apparently long before my time, but uh, I'm assured it's true. But nowadays, sadly, in the church, in the church, women are thought of badly for staying at home and not going to work. When did that happen? What does it mean to be a stay-at-home mom? Biblically, Christianly. How do we work and live together and honor one another and speak healthy words of doctrine into the different contexts of our lives? And don't get scared by the word homemaker if you're a woman under the age of 20. It's a biblical word, girls. Go and look it up. 
And it's a, let me tell you, it's an honorable word. It's actually a holy word. I mean, think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus return to heaven? Anybody know? To repair a home for us. And what will he do with us when he, when he comes back once again? He will take us to this home that he has made for his people. So in my Bible, Jesus is the ultimate homemaker. So let's all calm down over that word. <laughs> but then, we are, well, well, let's get off homemaker. Let's get onto submission. That's a bad boy. So we're honestly called to submit, are we? Well, again, look at Jesus. He submitted to the will of the Father, and he died for his bride, the church, and then goes to prepare a home for her. If Jesus Christ is not the supreme example for women when it comes to homemaking and submission, then I don't know what is. This is the sort of healthy doctrine we need to speak into one another's lives as we're getting swallowed by the culture around us. These are the kinds of women we need in our churches. Women who understand the healthy biblical teaching, who understand the gospel and how it applies into everyday existence. And homes are the battlegrounds for our generation. Young women need to be mothers. They need to look after their children. They need to understand the Bible. They need to know how to live as Christians in the world. And, and, and my question then to older women, mature women in this room right now, who are you discipling? All that knowledge and experience, years of pain and disappointment and grief and joy, who are you sowing that into? As you've worked that out in community and with others around you, why don't you model that? Does this church have a culture of training and releasing women into ministry for the health of the local body? Women, do you just, you know... Gather round in your sewing groups or whatever you do, um, moaning about the church. Do you just moan about how young women dress? Do you judge that young mother whose kids just cannot sit still for two minutes in the church service and their constant griping winds you up? Do you despair when you're talking to a young women and they just have absolutely no clue and show no biblical common sense? Well, why don't you stop moaning and teach them then? Why don't you take them under your wing and model this stuff for them? Why don't you get involved in the mess and dirt of their lives? Where are our godly, mature women teaching and modeling healthy doctrine right now? Ask yourself, and we all need to ask ourselves this question. Am I leading and discipling somebody right now? Am I in a healthy discipling relationship? Or am I just an unhappy, or maybe happy, consumer in this building? When people spend time with you, are you killing their faith? Or are you nurturing Are you destroying their love of the gospel and the local body? 
or are you building it up and helping to nurture and help them grow through painful times? Sisters, you need to disciple somebody. And younger sisters, you need to find somebody to disciple you. It's healthy. It's biblical. It's vital to the health of the local body. It's what we're called to do, Paul says, as we wait for his glorious appearing. Well, what do we say to them? What do we teach? Well, the answer is the same for men and women. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Teach them grace. Grace, he says, teaches us all things. Grace is the source of all godly wisdom and healthy doctrine. Point one another back to the cross. That place where Jesus hung and died so that we could be reconciled to the heavenly Father and then to one another. That's the healthy teaching. And notice, he says in verse 12, that this grace does not only save us, but it teaches us. It continues to sanctify us and to, and to grow us. So God doesn't just walk us through the door of salvation when we come to Jesus, but his grace in our lives enables us to help one another grow, enables us to help one another develop and become more Christ-like until he comes again. And so the Christian life is not to be lived alone. We do it together. We do it arm in arm. We do it hand in hand. Grace has appeared here at your church, hasn't it? I think so. It's appeared here. So what are you doing with it? Are you sitting on it? We need to speak it daily. We need to teach it from our leaders in the pulpit. We need to model it. We need to rebuke people in it. We need to encourage people in it. We need to mentor it. This is what a life of grace looks like in life. We need to teach that. We who know something of pain and mourning, we who know loss, we can share that. We can teach that to the young when their time comes to face the harsh realities that this world brings into our lives. Who knows what it means to fall into sin and yet to be gloriously restored again and again? We can teach that and model that to the young. Grace forgives us and raises us up again and again. We can teach people. We can show them what does true Biblical, grace-filled restoration look like in a life. So whether we're young or old, whether we're men or women, this responsibility, Paul says, rests with all of us who call ourselves Christians. And it's messy work, discipleship. It's costly work. I bet there are some here sat this evening thinking, I don't have the time for this. Well done. Round of applause. I'm off home. If you don't have the time, make the time. you are serious about passing the gospel on, if you are serious about passing the gospel of grace on to the next generation, 
then it is a community affair. Do not leave it to your men or your leadership teams or whatever structure you've got. Jesus is coming again in verse 13. Amen? Who believes that? Yeah? Amen? Well, the rest of that chapter is just as true. Isn't it? So let's live in the light of that. Let's grow and love and challenge and encourage and nourish and speak and model healthy doctrine into one another's lives as we wait for Christ to come and claim us and bring us home. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Mess. Okay. Would you join me in thanking Mess? I wonder if we could take uh, two or three minutes just in silence, in prayer, and you ask yourself, and more importantly, ask a God some of the questions that Mez has asked. And then in a few moments, I will pray for us and we'll do a Q&A. Father, we thank you for your scriptures that have been speaking truth for thousands of years. Thank you for that incredibly unique ability the Bible has to speak across all cultures, all time, all education levels, all experiences. 
in order to present us with what we need most. And that's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray tonight on behalf of all of us, Father, that you would protect us from hard hearts. I pray that you would enable us and encourage us to be not just hearers of your word, but also doers. So guide us, Lord, in what you would have us do individually and collectively with what we've heard. I thank you, Lord, for uh, how much of that is happening here and for the brothers and sisters that are so faithful to do the things Mez spoke of. We pray, Lord, that that would mushroom, that that would continue, that in the future we would feel like we had absolutely no idea what we were doing, and yet your grace inspired and motivated and changed and impacted far more than we ever dared to imagine. As we now have a unique opportunity to ask some questions, we pray for your uh, insight. We pray that what we would trust in, or rather who we would trust in, is uh, your spirit, not just methods or tradition. And that we could leave tonight both better equipped to live in this place in a way that pleases you, and also to be aware of what you're doing in Scotland and to learn how you might desire for us to further your work there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we have Sharon, are Sharon and I don't see them. You are. All right. Uh, we have Mez and Mez. Are you ready for that? Uh, before we ask some okay. questions, I want to um, offer to someone. This is uh, Mez's, one of the two books Mez has written, Is There Anybody Out There? This one is updated. I don't know what that means, but it's an updated edition. Who would be interested in reading Mez's story? You must fight over it because like 12 people have raised their hand. No, no, I didn't point to you. Sit down. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. This is uh, another book that pushes on much of what you heard tonight called Follow Me. It is written by David Platt. Essentially, he says... Christianity is very simple. Listen to the scriptures, learn the scriptures, speak the scriptures to each other. It's outstanding. Our Disciple Makers class on Wednesday night, one of the two books this semester we're using is this one. Someone not in there that's looking for a freebie, Allison, come on up. Give her a high five and cheers. All right. Great. Um, I will, could I start with a question? Yes, great. Um, could you tell us what a scheme is yeah. and what uh, maybe a little bit about the ministry there, and then we'll open it cool. to the floor. So a scheme is sort of, doesn't really have a cultural equivalent, so it's a sort of hybrid between what you would deem like the projects and a trailer park. So if you sort of mix those two together, it's a sort of, um, there's, not, there's less... There's, there's less, there's, there are guns, but there's less gun crime on a scheme, uh, in Scotland at least. Um, there's, there's, there's violent crime, but it's usually with 
weapon of choice is a samurai sword. Um, so, so it's not the same as sort of drive-bys in, in projects, but it's a sort of amalgamation. Um, it's actually so largely social housing, although that's changing now with urban regen regeneration and gentrification. But um, the schemes, my scheme's about 200 years old uh, and was formed just after the um, Industrial Revolution. Um, cleared the, the slums of the city centres were cleared in Scotland and purpose-built schemes projects were built on the outskirts of the city to house the poor. And so people have lived in them for generations. I mean, the almost nearest cultural equivalent when I was in Canada recently was Indian reservations. And so people generally live and die and breed and operate within a scheme. It's a very narrow, closed worldview. And you want me to sit up there now? Okay, now can I sit at your feet? <laughs> don't encourage him. <laughs> I don't think they could see me at the back if I stood on the chair. Never mind. Uh. Cool. Cool. Is that it? Yes, thank you. Okay. What questions do you have? If you would uh, raise your hand, Tad has a mic, and we will attempt to get this recorded so other people can listen. Pat, we'll start with you. The uh, Titus tells the older men yeah. to teach the younger men. Yeah. How do you know if you're old enough <laughs> or young enough? Um, yeah. who, who should be discipling who? I think you're there, so. Thank you. <laughs> and you can't, you can't be setting those up for me. That's much no. too easy. I know. Uh, no, I meant because there's people who don't feel comfortable. Yeah. Discipling. Yeah, that's um, feeling comfortable is a different issue. Yeah. Um, so I would say old as I wouldn't I wouldn't classify that as aged, but I would think mature. So biblically, uh, spiritually uh, mature, I would say, um, and um, I think um, I think that's all I'm going to say about that without offending everybody in the room. Um, hello. I just, I struggle with the term uncomfortable as a, as a reason for not doing something. I just don't, I think that's very unhealthy, um, personally. Um, but maybe that's because we're in a culture discipling out of absolute necessity because the guys didn't do it. The average age in my church is in their 20s and the older generation is pretty much gone. And so, um, the, the, you know, we're left with what we're left with. And so I think uh, if you've got a solid biblical foundation, knowledge, and, and, and mature in faith, and I think you know if you are, we're never perfect, are we? That's a different thing. And I think we have a responsibility to pass that on to, to younger guys. But a, a guy who comes to faith in his 50s might be getting discipled by a guy who's solid in his faith in his 20s. So don't confuse age with maturity. Thanks. We've added two. They are uh, fit right in here. You are 45 minutes late. <laughs> uh, Matthew, would you, you introduce yourself, and then I'll have Sharon do the same. Um, so I am Matthew Spandler Davison. Um, I grew up in Aberdeen, Scotland, um, and uh, came to faith at the age of 17 in uh, little church on the northeast coast of Scotland called Stonehaven, and um, 
then moved to the States about 10 years ago to go to seminary in Louisville, Southern Seminary. While I was there, planted to the church, Redeemer Fellowship Church, been pastoring that church about 10 years now, um, and then been serving for the last year and a half as the executive director of 20 Schemes, um, developing the church partnerships, fundraising, and then also recruitment of, um, of workers from here to go over to Scotland. So that's the work I've been playing. And then I drive everybody around and make sure they get places on time. <laughs> to be fair, they were teaching next door. So. You didn't have to bring that up. Okay, but you can repent at some point if you like. <laughs> Maybe. And you. <laughs> I feel really bad. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Sharon. Um, I have been at Nidri Community Church, which is the church that um, Mez has been talking about um, as a member for about 10 years. And um, I've been on staff for about five and a half, so uh, I've, I've done all sorts of jobs, but mostly I focused on the, the women's ministry. And since the beginning of the launch of 20 Schemes, that's where uh, my focus has been. So I am the um, director for women's ministry. I can never remember that title. <laughs> Sometimes I have to look at my card to remember what it is. But I do remember my name. <laughs> And where I'm supposed to be on time. She's going to... Excellent. Excellent. Thanks. Well, welcome. Glad you could join us. Another question. Uh, thanks, Mez, for Titus, too. That's, that's a good reminder. Um, as... I look through these words and think about an older man, an older man, and someone that's mature. Think about how I should be doing, what I should be doing. Uh, I was wondering if you could kind of spend a little bit of time talking about the, the older man when you first came to Christ. But I'm sure that they did all of this that's here. But can you spend a little bit more time talking about how they actually modeled these words that we read tonight? Yeah. So for me, it was um, it, it, it was different. I didn't. Um, the men I mentioned earlier in, when, I, when I began were in, in a variety of different um, situations, so it wasn't really modelled in one particular church for me. Um, and so these convictions have come over time as I've watched and pastored and been pastoring for 13 years. Um, mistakes I've made, um, churches I've been in in situations, so it's very hard to put flesh on what you're trying to say from my own personal perspective because it looks exactly how I said it looks. Some guys met, were good and met with me one-to-one -one for study. Some guys just took me out and around their house for a meal and I would just talk and ask them questions about life, not necessarily with a Bible open. So it was um, not just learning the scriptures but imbibing a world view as well and, and how I learned best was just through asking questions and watching how people lived and that meant being involved in their lives. But most of the culture that I was saved into, church, was two meetings on a Sunday and a midweek prayer meeting. And that was it. And I needed more than that. And so um, much of how we do and model community is a, is a direct reaction against the Christianity I was saved into. Um, because when our guys come to faith in a scheme, for instance, because they're so, it's so intrinsically tied to the, a, a strong culture, it's almost equivalent to a Muslim coming to faith. So their whole community can turn against them very quickly. And if all we've got to offer them is a midweek meeting and a Sunday service, well, it's, 
It's nothing, is it? And so we work very hard. Our building is open. Our church building is set up like a, a cafe, a community cafe. It's almost like a giant living room. Guys come in and hang in and hang out. They're in our homes. Um, we, we, we constantly do Bible study, but sometimes we're doing Bible study five or six times a week with individuals or small or groups or, or whatever. So we don't have a, um, a pattern. And we're very in the, we have a structure behind everything we're trying to do. It's often in the moment of a, of a chaotic life. If someone comes in and they're in a crisis, usually we'll just sit down, open the Bible, present Christ to them, point them to, you know. Uh, and so it's a bit more messy than, than giving you clean-cut guidelines. Sorry, that's not helpful at all. But Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so everybody doesn't go. We have certain materials we use, but certain people aren't, depending on where people are. And some people are very literate, some people aren't literate at all. And so we just have to be careful. But we, whether a person can read and write or not, can still come and hang out and do life together. You know, the, the, the New Testament was written to be read out loud. Um, not, you know, just sat and dissected in a room with posh people, so... We can pass the truth on verbally that way as well. Thanks. Dad, Jessica had her hand up. Uh, we live in a community that is, uh, when you come home from work, you drive into your garage, you close the garage door, you go inside your house, you don't talk to your neighbors, you don't see who's outside the door, that sort of thing. Um, what are some practical ways that we can develop community uh, with each other? Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm not, and that's, I'm not being facetious. I, I, that is brutal. I, I, I don't know how to deal with that. that. That is just foreign to us. But we, we see that in gentrification in our scheme. So the poor are being shipped out. New houses are being built. And these middle class dudes that you're talking about move in. All they want to do is come in, park the car, go home, put the TV on, do what they do, go out to work and do that. And they don't engage with us. Um, they're the people that we reach the least. So I'm the worst person to ask. Um, I've got some middle class dudes on my team who even they struggle. You know, And they're co coming from some... The, culture the, the, the same place and so um, yeah uh, sorry when I first moved over here that was my biggest culture shock moving from Scotland to the States is that growing up in in, uh, in Scotland you know, we were in each other's homes all the time um, and this very communal sense of, of identity that you, you know, if you're outside you're, you know, the children are playing with the neighbor's children and, and, uh, and, and we're constantly in each other's lives all the time even not just church community but just community and so and then I moved over here in um, to Kentucky and it was yeah I, was, I thought nobody liked me you know I just thought what's up with this you know and then I realized that you know it's, everybody's like that and you know and people wouldn't they, they would they would call ahead to come and visit I found that very strange that people have to call like say can I come and see you and they'd always have a reason to come and see me. You know, they'd have, they'd have an agenda. 
There was no just kind of, not, you know, showing up and hanging out. That was so odd to me. Um, so just think about doing ministry in this culture compared to what I was used to in, in the UK. Um, you just got to have a, a very, very um, strong sense of intentionality. And I think the church can model that well. If you're not doing that with each other as, as a body of believers, um, and that, I think it's very attractive to the world um, when, when it's seen and, um, and done. And so just, but you've got to build, you've got to intentionally build time into your week, into your day, into your lifestyle um, to be able to create that culture. It, everything's against you here. Um, it, like I said, you know, the architecture, the buildings, the, you know, you, get, you have drive-through banks. You don't even walk into a bank anymore. Um, you know, so she drive through the bank here. I want to go to one of those. <laughs> How cool is that? <laughs> hey, you put your thing in a little tube and you press a button and it shoots it up into like a little office somewhere. I love this country though. <laughs> and then they send it back and it's got a little lollipop in it. <laughs> you're, you're behind. Now you take a picture of your check in your home. That is true. And send it. You don't even have to go to the drive-thru. Anymore. No. So. Plus, we don't have any money, so. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so just being intentional in, in, the, in the church and creating it. It's difficult. It is difficult here. Yeah. I think prayers are key. I'm not trying to be all spiritually holy-joly, but, um, you know, one of the things when I took over at Nidri, the church I'm at now, even though there's a close sense of community, I was an outsider coming in. They'd, loads of middle-class dudes had tried to plant a church there for a decade. They hadn't seen a soul save. It was just, it was a, it was a mess. And um, uh, you know, we're seeing like people come to faith now and, 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 and being saved. I spent the first two years almost in, the, in that prayer room, just praying six to eight every day. Pray for people, people I met walking to the street. I kept the same routine and structure, went to the same place. My wife thought I was getting OCD, but it was just tactic. Buy the paper from the same shop and do the same thing and get, get a habit and, and, and get known. And, you know, people would go from just staring at me, to, you know, and six months later to a nod to, all right. To, I mean, it was hard. And you find out their name, and I would put them on a list, and I would pray for them. Pray, pray through the list until, and one by one, we'd tick these people off. They were getting saved. And, and, and um, I don't know how now looking back, but it was really difficult in the early years, and I forget mm-hmm. that sometimes because we're such an intrinsic part of the community now. Um, but I, I do believe that intentionality in how you live, but also in praying specifically, naming these guys, and, and, and even, you know, everybody has habits. It's keeping the same habits yeah. and, and, and doing the best you can, I think. There are two things that I found helpful, just my own my own neighborhood, the street that I live on. Again, um, I had a really hard time with my neighbors not talking to me, and so I thought, I'm, g- I'm going to do something about this, trying to figure this out. Um, striking. Two things I've learned. One is getting a dog <laughs> made all the difference. No, if I could walk down the street and I could walk past everybody and they're like, you know, do the whole head nod thing, yeah. you know, and, and you walk past. If you're walking with a dog, they stop and they talk to the dog. And so having a dog has, has introduced me to way more of my neighbors than, than anything else. And, um, and the other trick that I've realized is if I invite a neighbor into my house, like for dinner, they're not going to come. You know, yeah, you know, they'll say yes, but they never actually come. Um, 
But if I invited my neighbor to come and help me with something, they will come. You know, if the guy next door, hey, we, I'm, I'm just having you know, a hard time with this or whatever, I need help in the kitchen fixing this, they'll come. And, then, and so it's doing stuff. If, if, if they feel like they're doing something with me, then I can engage a conversation with them. But if I'm just bringing them in, just, then they're, they're kind of nervous about coming to the dinner. That's certainly where I'm at. I don't know the same culturally here, um, but in Kentucky, but those are the two things that I've realized just intentionally that's really helped me make connections to people. And if you could teach the dog to bark, John 3.16. That's, that's the winner right there. Here's a cute dog, though, right? His neighbors talk to me, and I don't have a dog. So. <laughs> I'll be fair, you're the same size as my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Before this gets ugly real quick. believer for a while, but um, unfortunately, the concept of discipleship is kind of new to me, or like intentional disciple, discipling relationships. Um, and I am really eager to form those and um, encouraged by what I've heard tonight, but um, I'm wondering, I know in some informal mentoring relationships that I've had in the past, I really struggle um, with the desire to like see results in that person's life, and to I think it's almost this struggle of like wanting them to look like me and to have the same desires as me. And if it's an unbeliever, to see them come to faith, um, which I know is a good and honest desire. But I guess I just want you to comment on maybe your personal experiences with just day in, day out life with, with people um, and resisting the urge to, um, I don't know, to do the work that only Christ can do as far as forming them and... Um, into who he's created them to be. Uh, I don't know if that's clear. And you might just need to say that I need to continue to grow. But, um, yeah, I just want some insight on that. Yeah, I mean, you have to be very careful in discipleship not to become um, another person's functional savior. Um, and there's a difference between that and what we're talking about. And so we would, and it's, it seems obviously simple, but it's true, is that uh, the responsibility is to speak into their lives healthy, sound doctrine and grace and to point them to Christ and leave the rest to the Holy Spirit uh, of the Lord. And it's very easy to slip into a relationship based on um, uh, morality. You know, do this, to ABC, you want to see. And I think you need to be very um, careful um, uh, to avoid that. And I think that's why biblically older, mature people should mature, should um, disciple younger believers. And, and, and then these sort of... Um, uh, questions will come up because if we've got a need to be liked or loved or respected or or whatever or, or project our insecurities onto somebody else that is a, that can end up to be a very destructive relationship very quickly um, uh, and so um, I say the motivation to watch our heart is a good thing and I think we should always continually be guarding watching our hearts testing ourselves to see if we're in the faith and, uh, and making sure um, uh, I don't want to think of discipleship how it's come across tonight is groups that you know two people one up one down sort of stuff that should be happening but it's a community affair as i've said there's more than one person speaking into my life you can seek wisdom from your leaders from a, a, a broad range of people and that and that's how community uh, true godly biblical transparent community um uh, brings checks and balances in, into our lives god's pretty clever when he invented the church 
I think. So. Sharon, do you have some additional thoughts um, about that? I think that, that part of it is also if you are, you're thinking about somebody more mature in your life. So if you are discipling someone and you have good accountability and somebody speaking godly into your life and you are genuinely being honest about how um, you're discipling this other person, um, and, and I say the, the genuinely honest because it's really easy for us to, to um, try and hide behind lots of Christian chat. Um, then, then that person's there to, can be a really good buffer to make sure you don't get sidetracked with that kind of thing. So, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's always good. I mean, we, Miriam and I, we do, Mezzie's wife, we, she's my accountability, and there's times where we talk about this where we're frustrated because we think somebody should be doing X, Y, and Z, and we have to have someone just remind us we, it's not our job. It's, it's God's job who grows. We, we just are there to speak wisely into their lives. They, we can't make people make good decisions. And there's times when we are, we're, we're discipling people and it is frustrating and it's sad and it's hard. And there's times when it's rejoicing. But you, you need that, that, some, that someone who is going to um, keep you in touch when you need to. So keep you in check. Um, someone that you, you trust well enough to be honest about and, and say the things like, uh, really, I'm really disappointed in so-and-so because I expected them to do such and such. So reveal your heart to them, what's really kicking off, so that they can, they can bring you back in line and point you back to, to Christ. So I, I, I would say that if you are discipling, then, then um, you, you, you too need to have good accountability, somebody good that's a, a godly woman speaking into your life that, that is... Um, not afraid to tell you the things that you, that, that, that you really don't want to hear. So for me, I, that, that's, that's part of, part of the, for, for discipling. For me, it's helped me grow. As I disciple others, it, it, brings, my, it brings my life into challenge because if you're looking after someone much younger than you, I suddenly think I, I need to keep a check on my life. But also when my attitude is wrong, and I mean, when you're spending time with people, it does get... It gets wrong. She, she, I mean, she's a, a good place for me to go to remind me. She kicks my butt, basically, and points me back in the right direction, back to Christ, and keeps my eyes fixed on him. So we need that. And she, we, we need not to be afraid of that, because as girls we are, we are, it's when we don't like, I don't know about blokes, but we don't like to reveal the true person of who we are. We don't want people to really see what what is going on beneath the surface. But we... If we want to grow as, as Christians, if we want to grow as women, we need to dish it up. We need to be honest about who we are and what's going on in our lives so that we can allow them to, to speak truth into it. That's all I would say. That's pretty good. And a really Scottish accent. <laughs> Thank dish you. it up. I, I know looking back on, on my ministry, by far the most dangerous days in it and the most harm I did was when I was trying to find my identity in the progress of other people. And uh, if, if I'm not fully rooted, grounded in the gospel, some of the greatest harm I can possibly cause someone is to try and manipulate their growth. Uh, so as I look back on just, you know, years of trying to figure this out too, it's, um, the degree to which I am finding my identity and joy and contentment in Christ um, will make me, as a result, much less dangerous in my discipling of others. 
I think that's a great question, Julie. Uh, for time's sake, let me ask just one more, and we'll uh, end here. And if you have another, too bad. Um, I'm sorry. Matthew, could you speak uh, to uh, briefly to uh, what can individuals and what can a church do uh, to further the work that's happening in 20 Schemes? Yes, yeah, so um, start with with the, with the church. Um, so 20 Schemes is a ministry of a local church in Scotland, Nedry Community Church. Um, it is a church that has a large vision to see uh, churches revitalized and planted across Scotland in the schemes. But to do that, recognizing that we need um, others to come alongside us to partner uh, with that work in order to both fund, resource, and sustain uh, the work of that vision. And so we're looking for, for churches such as yourselves to, to partner with 20 schemes, both financially, um, but also to um, uh, be an encouragement to the work by coming over. Um, we, we invite church leaders to come and join us on, on our vision trips, do that three times a year where we, we come and show you some of the opportunities we have, some of the, get a feel for some of the urgency of the need in some of the communities and the schemes of Scotland. Um, we have mission trips in the summer. In July, we open up three weeks um, where we invite our partner churches to come and, and to get their the feet on the ground again, to stand alongside the workers on the field to be an encouragement and support to them. Um, and also pray that maybe the Lord would send workers from amongst yourself. Maybe there's somebody right here in this room that God would be preparing, raising up to become one of the kind of the, the, the pioneer missionaries to move into a community with a team uh, where there may not be any believers um, or much of anything happening right now, to be that initial work to raise up a church indigenous leadership from within that community. And so we believe that it is through working with other churches, like-minded churches, that we will see the resources and the, the sustaining um, power to keep this vision going for the long term. And so we invite churches like yourselves to come and stand with us for that individually. You know, plug into your local church, and as your local church plugs into 20 Schemes, um, there's opportunities for you to serve um, through that. But also we have uh, um, opportunities for you to give individually as well on our website and take a a 10 for 20 pledge was $10 a month. Um, and th that funding, 10 for 20, goes towards training our indigenous leaders. And so if you haven't done that, if you've never even heard of that, then uh, go to our website, uh, um, 20schemes.com, and, and I've got some pledge cards as well um, that you could fill up tonight just to make that very simple commitment, just $10 a month, and it makes a very significant difference in terms of raising up new leaders in Scotland. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you for being here uh, tonight. It's been a fun evening, hasn't it? Yeah. Can I just say thank you for having us and thank you for supporting Cash and everything that this church has done so far. And we really appreciate it and I'm just grateful for that. So thank you. Our privilege. Thank you. Um, if you're staying for the next event, we'll be starting in probably seven or eight minutes in the uh, east, west, which one is that? West wing. Um, if you didn't get a question answered and you're not going to that, maybe the three of you could be available for another five minutes or so here. And thank you for being here tonight. Thank you.